1: elementary school teacher, or even a weed grower. In fact, he was all three, but now he's given up the money, the education, and possibly the drugs to take on comedy. Award-winning writer and nationally touring headliner Noah Gardenswars is performing in the Comedy Cellar at the Rio All Suite Hotel and Casino through November 12th. Showtimes are 7 and nine thirty. For ticket information, go to thecomedycellar.com. And for everything about Noah, go to noagardenswars.com. And follow him on Instagram at Noah G Comedy. Noah's special sweatpants in perpetuity is now available on YouTube. And Noah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Why did you give up weed for comedy, or did you? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't. I didn't give one up for the other. Life just kind of happens. Uh, no, I mean, I I started as my comedy career took off. I stopped being as risky as my other endeavors, but uh, still, I still indulge from time to time. Though certainly less as I've gotten older and the weed got stronger.
1: <laughs> and now that you're a parent with kids, you wanted to take on the serious role of comedy instead. Yeah. I'm assuming yeah, exactly. Right. How did you get started in comedy? I know that you were a semi-finalist on NBC's Last Comic Standing, but even before then, obviously, you were performing stand-up. So how did that all begin for you?
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, Last Comic Standing probably wasn't until I think I was seven or eight years into comedy at that point. I started comedy, I was I started going to open mics in Atlanta right before my senior year in college. I was a sociology major, didn't really know what I wanted to do, didn't have any job offers or necessarily career direction as evidenced by all the different things I've tried out that you discussed. Um (laughs) but I've always I've always been a creative writer. Growing up I've always enjoyed writing and I've tried different formats, everything from short stories and journalism to eventually just writing jokes. I started writing jokes just I've always loved stand-up. I never thought about pursuing it. But my junior year in college I broke my leg and I had to take a medical withdrawal for a semester and that Six months back at home, I started writing jokes just as they came to me, and I decided to hit up some open mics that summer when I went back. And kind of the rest is history.
1: You mentioned Atlanta. Did you grow up in Atlanta?
0: No, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, but I went to Emory University for college.
1: Okay, yeah, because I didn't notice an, a any kind of accent from you that would indicate Atlanta. So
0: yeah, no, know, no southern accent.
1: That makes sense. Who did you look to at that point for mentors in comedy? Or did you have any mentors in comedy?
0: No, I mean, I didn't. You mean like when I first started?
1: Yes. In other words, were, were there some stand-up comedians that were performing either of your generation or older generations that you look to for a sense of your style, a sense of your approach, a sense of your material?
0: No, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I've never had what I would call a, a mentor in comedy. I never had like a successful older comedian kind of take me under their wing and show me the ropes. Growing up, I was always a fan of, like, Chris Rock, Mitch Hedberg. Those were kind of my two favorites. I watched a lot of, like, George Carlin and Chris Rock, their HBO specials were kind of, like, what I grew up watching and loving as a young child. And there's so many comedians I grew to admire over the years. One person in Atlanta that definitely was a professional comedian that 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 kind of helped me out in terms of figuring out a writing style is a guy named Tom Simmons. So I would say Tom Simmons is probably the closest I've had to a mentor, but like I said I've never like had someone take me out on the road and show me the ropes. I kind of I'd like to say kind of went my own way.
1: Do you find you ended up getting cynical by being out on the road?
0: No, definitely not cynical. I mean, I loved I love being on the road. There's a time and place for everything in your life. So The kind of things that I would do on the road back then, I can't do now. I'm married. I have two children. So my life and my lifestyle is quite different. But being out on the road definitely did not make me cynical. I actually felt incredibly grateful for the opportunity to see the country, see the world in some regards, and and kind of live like a very carefree artistic lifestyle. I had no real responsibility other than performing at night and... You know, I wasn't making a lot of money, but as long as I had enough gas to get to the gig and a couch to sleep on that night, it was kind of, it was great.
1: <laughs> did you meet your wife on the road or was that a relationship that was there before you hit the road?
0: Uh, I met my wife on a podcast. So <laughs> not on the road, but we did meet through comedy, certainly in like the new version of comedy's way of meeting. Yeah. We got on a podcast and then from there, the romance grew.
1: I love that. That's great. That's the first, I think you're my first guest that ever met their partner or their soon-to-be partner on a podcast as opposed to so many other ways that you meet someone. So that's great. Yeah, well, she,
0: she's a comic as well, so it wouldn't be like doing a road gig and then seeing a woman in the stands you know, or <laughs> out in the crowd. We, we're, we're peers and coworkers, and it works.
1: Well, if you want to give her a shout-out, you're more than welcome to and, or give her a plug. Yeah, of course.
0: Her,
1: she could be... Her
0: name is sort of... somewhere. Her name is Esther Steinberg.
1: Almost Sternberg, so, yes, I like it. Yeah, not Sternberg. <laughs> I, but I got a Steinberg. I know, I know Steinberg. Yeah, I a, Steinberg, I a, Steinberg I a, is more you. Steinberg is more popular than Sternberg as a name. So yes, I I get you. Esther Steinberg, great. Okay, well maybe we'll have her on the show in the in the future. That'd be great.
0: Yeah, I'm sure she'd love to.
1: So how did you how did you go from being on the road to becoming a writer, especially for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? That's a that's a quite an established show and quite a popular show and a lot of writing goes on. In fact, if you were paid by the word, you'd be a millionaire on that show, wouldn't you?
0: <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so, yeah. It was like, what was it? Is it Dickens that got paid by the word? That's yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it was It was certainly a long journey from the time for me being a road dog in Atlanta to writing for Mrs. Maisel is probably close to a decade but I was I was in Atlanta doing comedy for about eight years before I moved to New York, um, and so most of my early road years were those Atlanta years. And then when I moved to New York, that's when I moved to be there for more serious professional opportunities and kind of like really give it a go to make a life out of comedy. And so while I was up there, it was I think my second or third year in New York, I got a comedy central half hour special, and that happened to be the year that Mrs. Mazel got a pilot order at Amazon. They were looking for writers and they wanted to have a stand-up comedian in the room to help kind of be a consultant with, mm-hmm. with just a stand-up. And so my agents sent Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, the the executive producer and creators of the show, sent them my half-hour special and they liked my comedy enough to interview me. And when I went in the interview, we just hit it off, just as people. I mean, it really wasn't even about comedy or writing at that point because in a writer's room you you spend so much time together you know you're talking eight or nine hours a day in a small room so it's got to be someone that you can tolerate and get along with so I think the fact that they liked my comedy and personally we hit it off they were willing to take a chance and give me my first job and what a first job it was
1: oh yeah I mean that's that's a, an amazing show there are so many elements to that show I mean, we won't get we won't get necessarily bogged down in discussing the show because you have so much more in terms of, uh, especially your upcoming performance at the Comedy Cellar at the Rio through November 12th, but I'm just fascinated by how you went from being on the road to writing for such a major show, and it wasn't as if you were writing for other shows for five or ten years before you got the Mrs. Maisel arrangement.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it really was a matter of luck meets timing and preparation, where it was absolutely lucky to even be considered or have the opportunity to submit for that. But it was right after I had this great this half hour special. It was like a great body of work to showcase my stand up talent for them to look at. And so it was, you know, it's years of doing stand up to put yourself in the right situation when the opportunity arises.
1: When you're in the writer's room and you mentioned being on the in the writer's room, it's you're, you're together for eight, nine, 10 hours. So it is like being married.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, in yeah, sense. With, with a little more fighting and just as much discussion about what, what you want to eat. Yeah,
1: Exactly. But you get paid for it, so that's the difference. With marriage, you don't necessarily get paid Correct. for that. So, okay. Did you learn a lot while you were in the writer's room because you were so new to that field, that part of, of comedy?
0: Of course. I mean, I I learned endless amounts. And not only did I learn something because I was new, but I was learning from living legends. I mean, the Paladinos are... Some of the greatest tv writers of all time so to get to go in the room and really soak up all the knowledge and learn from people who do it at such a high level was was just like an ultimate blessing of course
1: did you get a chance to interact with some of the actors as well because you were a writer or did they keep you guys separate
0: i mean th- there's definitely a separation it's not like the actors were coming into the writer's room to chum it up or check on us every day but we certainly interacted and i mean i was on the show for five years so at that time you make relationships, and when you go do table reads or occasionally or on set, you know you cross paths. And honestly, all the uh, all the actors and actresses were lovely. I didn't I didn't have a bad experience with any of them.
1: Yeah, there's some legends there in the actors area as well as the Yeah, I mean, the,
0: the truth is, I think everyone felt fortunate to be involved in the show, and as a result, it was like a really great work atmosphere.
1: Tell us a little bit, because I mentioned it earlier, Last Comic Standing. Where did that fall in the timeline between getting started in comedy from Atlanta and then before getting the job with the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Where was Last Comic Standing in all of that? I
0: I might be off. I mean, my memory is fading more because of parenthood than the weed. (laughs) I might might be off off by a year or two, but I know I moved to New York in 2013 um, and I think I did Last Comic Standing in 2014 and I got Mazel 2016. So there was like a year and a half in between Last Comic Standing and my first writing job.
1: Were you a surprise at how you ended up with Last Comic Standing?
0: You mean like in terms of how I placed?
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, did you figure you would get somewhere in the semifinals or would you be cut out earlier or no, what I mean you know, I was
0: I I had I have confidence in my abilities and my joke writing, but you know, comedy is such a crapshoot. Comedy really is so subjective. It's it's up to the taste of the person who has to be watching it. And so there were 100 comics to start the show. There's three judges. And somewhere in between then, you see how much they like you versus how much experience and talent you have against some of the other people in the field. I think I could have gone farther. I also think I could have gone out in the first round. You know, again, it's when you have 100 capable comics and only three people judging them, I mean, it really is anyone's guess how you're going to do. But overall, it was still a great experience.
1: So it wasn't like chemistry, which is exact.
0: Yeah, there's no chemistry other than between the comic and the art.
1: <laughs> exactly. Now, your special on YouTube, Sweatpants and Perpetuity, how yeah. did that come about? And did you have you used that for a very effective means of presenting yourself to people that may not be aware of you from before?
0: So it actually came out October 26th, so it hasn't been out that long. But part of the reason we put it out for free on YouTube is specifically, as you mentioned, to give people who aren't familiar with my comedy an opportunity to find me. You know, I've I've just started getting more active on Instagram, social media, posting clips. And I found that I'm gaining new fans and everything I've been posting has been really old stuff from my past three albums or my old specials. And so now anyone who's discovering me for the first time will have a full special that they can go watch of my most recent material and see what I'm working on now. With no barriers to entry. There's no payment. It doesn't need to be a platform that you have to download. It's just right there on YouTube. And I've been very pleased so far with the results.
1: And I think two people in Hollywood can see it and make decisions about you for possible bookings without having to have sure. you come in physically, which, again, is great without you having to travel. Yeah, I mean, it. that
0: the entire paradigm of Hollywood has shifted in that you hardly ever come in in person anymore. Like Even now, when you do initial auditions it's over zoom or you self tape and send it in like long gone are the days of from the very first time they're looking to cast someone Mm -hmm. you fly in go into the room and do it that that doesn't really exist anymore
1: so i think for some of those producers there's a virtual casting couch then (laughs) yeah exactly yeah as opposed to the old days what brought you to las vegas you mentioned that you live here now so that's unusual most comedians don't yeah
0: we moved we moved here in august So we were in New York together for the last five or six years. And then when we had the kid, when we had our first kid, and he started crawling around a tiny New York apartment, we decided we wanted some more space. So we moved out west to LA to give it a shot. And I enjoyed LA. I I wasn't one of those New Yorkers that like absolutely hates LA. It was a lovely place to live, but it was becoming incredibly expensive. We were hoping to be able to buy a house one day, and the housing market was just out of control. And then the writer's strike was kind of... The last straw for us. where I was like, why are we paying to live in such an expensive city to pay rent when we can't even work in this city? And so we started exploring other options In Las Vegas is close enough to LA to be there if we ever need to be there for work. It's incredibly affordable compared to some of the other big cities. There's a lot of full-time comedy clubs where as a comic, separate from TV and writing, you can work and get paid work. There's a nice sized Jewish community, which was important to us as well. We have kids that we want to send to Jewish day school. So it offered a lot, and we figured we'll at least try it for 12 months. We'll rent a house for a year, see how we like it, and if we like it, we'll stay. So far, we love it.
1: No, that's great. And welcome to Las Vegas. I didn't right. realize it was that soon that you – or that uh, recent that you moved to Las Vegas, August. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I moved here quite a while ago, so I've seen the town change over the years, but it's still a welcoming city. And uh, the opportunities are still great, especially for someone in your position, because it is a great base of operations I've discovered where, as you said, if you need to get to Hollywood, you can. If you have to fly to New York, you can or wherever you need to go. So that part works. Let's talk a little bit about your standup performance. Do you aim for a certain type of audience or do you just write about what you know, or is it a combination of the two? You're a father now of two kids, you're married. So that's a little bit of a different thing than telling jokes as if you were in your 20s and you were single, et cetera. Yeah, I mean,
0: the, the truth is I don't, I don't aim for a particular audience other than myself. I write for myself. If I think the joke is funny, then I trust other people will think it's funny. I'm not a political comic. I'm not a satirical surrealist comic. I'm very much... Observational storyteller talking about my life. So, uh, Sweatpants and Perpetuity is the fourth album and special that I've put out. So, if you were to listen to all four of my albums, you would really understand the transition of my life. Like, my body of work almost is like an autobiography because I'm in a very different place. The first album, I was single, sleeping around, doing a lot of drugs, having fun. Now, this fourth album, I'm married with two kids and very much talking about that and everything in between. So, Again, because my comedy is about myself, I treat myself as the ideal audience, and then you know who it speaks to, who it relates to. I would hope cast a wide net. I'm certainly not like a polarizing, divisive, tell it like it is comic. I think people from all walks of life can come watch me and enjoy my comedy. I'm just there to, you know, have a good time, be silly, make people laugh. I'm not. I'm not trying to do anything other than make people in the room happy.
1: That's interesting. A lot of comedians I talk to, they have a very specific point of view and. It's sometimes cynical, it's sometimes hard-edged, it's sometimes political, but I think your approach is refreshing in that you are, you're chronicling your life, as you said, if they caught your earlier material, it was based on when you were in your 20s or earlier or later, and then you're doing what you are doing now as a married person who has two kids, so, and not uh, apologetic about it, That's that's who you are. So do you run your material now by Mrs. Steinberg?
0: I mean, you know, she's a comic, so there's a lot of a lot of joking around in the house. But we we kind of have a rule; they like funny wins out. So we both talk about each other a lot in our acts. And luckily, we have a great marriage, so my act is not like shitting on my wife, and she's not up there making fun of her husband. It's not a lot of negative stuff about like, oh, I can't believe I'm married to this wench. You know, like we have overwhelmingly positive things to say, but when we want to take jabs or poke fun or we have a joke here or there that's not necessarily the most flattering about our spouse, we always say, listen, if it's funny and it's getting a laugh, go for it. You don't need to worry about me being offended by it.
1: Right. And also, I think because you're married to a a fellow comic or comedian that the, when the issue of scheduling comes up. If you have to do a gig somewhere, she understands. and Or if she has to go and do something, you understand. So it, I assume that the parental chores get shared equally because of that situation.
0: Exactly. And I mean, a lot of times when people find out from either of us that we're married to a comic, I was like, oh, how how does that work? That must be crazy. I can't imagine... Being married to someone who does what we do, but we always say, I can't imagine being married to anyone other than a comic because like you said, I never, we never need to explain to each other why we're working late at night or why we have to be gone in this random city on a weekend. We completely understand. Yeah. We, we do make sure to kind of communicate our road schedule to each other so that at least one of us is home with the kids, but we definitely have both taken less road work and been at home more over the last three years as we've had children because we're just prioritizing the family over, you know, certain aspects of the career.
1: Right. Have you ever thought that once your career gets going even more when the kids get older and you have a little bit more time, have you thought about perhaps another language or doing your act in Yiddish? What do you think about that?
0: (laughs) I think learning enough Yiddish to do the act, that would be more work than parenting itself. But I I would love to see... A sort of revitalization of the Catskills circuit, like the Borscht Belt comedy. I would, I would love to in a few years, you know, perform for those kind of audiences, but just in the standard language I speak.
1: Understood. Unfortunately, I don't know if the Catskills themselves, physically or geographically, will come back. But I understand what you're saying. I think there's still a market for it in some sections of the country, Florida particularly, and uh, parts of Los Angeles and, and New York, I think as well. When you're looking ahead. Noah, are you looking at keeping both of your skills current in the sense that you you want to split your, uh, I'll get this, fr- I'll phrase this question in a better way once my head clears. Here it is. Okay, I got it. Do you want to devote as, equal t- as much equal time to writing as performing? And when I say writing, not writing your act, but or writing jokes for your act, but writing for other shows or other people, as opposed to what you do in performance, again, at the Comedy Cellar at the Rio through November 12th.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, in a perfect world, I would love to continue doing both. And they both require a great amount of energy and a balance of energies. So that is a great question. But yeah, I would love I plan on continuing to write for TV, writing movies. And I also plan to continue doing stand up. But as the writers strike over the last five months, kind of reiterated to me, stand up is always there and it was my first love. So I think there's a chance that if I was to get big enough and the kids were away in college that I would slow down on the writing and go tour more, I don't think there's a chance no matter how much TV or movie writing I do that I would ever stop doing stand-up. So I love them both. I feel fortunate to be able to do both and I plan to keep on doing both. But stand-up is my first love and probably my ultimate artistic priority.
1: What do you get from stand-up from an audience perspective? What I mean by that is it's your artistic commitment to stand up. But what do you, uh, what do you psychologically get from it? Is it the immediate response of laughter from the audience? Sure. I mean, yeah. There's
0: there's absolutely that like serotonin that comes from instant gratification. Like if you do TV or movies, it takes months, sometimes years, for the project to come together, for it to be put out, and to get the public reaction. Stand up, you know how you did. Ten seconds after you tell the joke, as soon as you leave the club that night, you know if the show went well or not. So. There's absolutely something great about the immediacy of the feedback and also TV and film is a collaboration where you're working with a lot of other people and it's it really is a teamwork thing and there's a lot of people that do or don't do their job well that will end in the result, whereas stand-up, it's all you. And so there's something beautiful about the connection of when I go perform a show, if the crowd likes me, I know it's 100% because of what I just did.
1: Do you handle rejection well? In other words, if you have a, an off night, and all comedians do, if you have an off night, do you you just accept it and go, well, it just didn't work that time?
0: Yeah, you you can't be a professional comedian for as long as I've been, or any professional comedian for that matter, without learning to handle rejection. You'll drive yourself crazy if if you don't learn to shake it off.
1: I would imagine what would, would irritate you more than a crowd that doesn't laugh, which happens to every comedian at some point, as you said, as any professional comedian. But it's more about if they pronounce your name right. Oh, no, I mean,
0: I've given up, I've given, <laughs> you did a great job at the top of the episode, but I've given up all hope of the people being able to pronounce my name. But that doesn't bother me at all.
1: But is. but you've kept it, which is good. So you didn't change it to Noah yeah, Smith.
0: Man, <laughs> I'm not going to suddenly be Noah Smith one day. I'm not going to change it.
1: Or Noah Jones, that could work as well. Do you videotape your p- material? So when you're performing just to study and see how you can improve or yeah. are you past, long past that point?
0: It's not about being passive or not. I mean, I know people who've been doing stand-up longer than I that that do that. I, If I'm being honest, I don't have the energy or the discipline for it. It's, it's a lot of work. and It is. Yes. Like, one thing that helps with my stand-up is I do have a great memory. So when I do the gig, I sort of know what jokes did well. If I flubbed a line or if there's something I want to build on or if I said something I want to make sure I remember, it's in there. Like. I'm pretty good once once I do the performance out loud, it's kind of locked and loaded in my brain um but yeah i don't I don't have the time or energy to record myself and then go back and watch it
1: right now with two kids i I don't think that would work i I wouldn't think do you get calls from fellow comedians about writing material for them
0: uh I have few and far between there have been i could count I could count on one hand the amount of people who have asked me about like if I would sell a joke or if I would consider writing something with them, and the truth is. I think stand-up is such a personal thing and specifically the way I write stand like unless I'm writing for a TV show like Mrs. Maisel and writing stand-up for a fictional character, um, I want to devote all of my joke writing energy to my own act.
1: If you could, and I know it's hard to describe it, but everyone's different. How do you, when you sit down and write a joke, because you've been doing it so long, do you write down the idea first and then think about alternatives to or funny? takeoffs on that idea? Or is it just a stream of consciousness where you just write a bunch of stuff and then you go back and edit it? How does that work for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, very rarely will a joke come to me in full form. Like it's once in a blue moon that like the joke just hits you and that's the best feeling in the world. Uh, But for the most part, it's not even necessarily something that I think is funny and observation. It's like something that I think is interesting. Something will just catch my eye as abnormal, different. It'll kind of make me think about, oh, what was that? And then I'll sort of sit down to inspect why is that interesting? And furthermore, why is that funny? And then I'll kind of try a loose version of that on stage. Sometimes, sometimes I can write the joke right away. Sometimes I tell the joke and I can tell that the premise is interesting or the kernel that brought me to it is funny, but the, the punchline isn't quite connecting with the audience. And then I'll kind of retool it and figure out maybe a stronger way to end the joke but for the most part it all starts with being interested in something and then kind of reverse engineering it from there
1: and when you do your material on stage can you tell yourself because you mentioned about how you'll remember what the audience reaction is so you don't have to record it at all but is there is there certain material in your act that you know will always get an uproarious laugh
0: Yeah, I mean always is a dangerous word to use in comedy. You never know when it's gonna be your night or your crowd where they're just not buying what you're selling. But yeah, you you have a few aces up your sleeve where it's like if if you're sort of losing the crowd or you're losing momentum, you have a few jokes that you can pull out that you know should get you right back on track.
1: And final question. So when you finish for the night, when you perform, do you immediately leave or do you hang out with the other comedians? Or is it Or you rather get home to the wife and kids?
0: I am infamously not a hanger-outer. There are a lot of comics that'll burn the midnight oil. I typically leave after my set if I can, unless I'm performing with friends I haven't seen in a while or like a fellow comedian who I know is doing a new part of their act that I haven't seen and I really want to see what they're working on. Like There are occasions where, of course, I'll hang out, but for the most part, when my job is done, I go home.
1: Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been award-winning writer, nationally touring headliner Noah Wars, He is performing in the Comedy Cellar at the Rio All Suite Hotel and Casino through November 12th. Show times are 7 and 9:30. For ticket information, go to theComedyCellar.com. For everything about Noah, go to NoahGardenshors.com, and you can follow him on Instagram at NoahGComedy. Noah's special sweatpants in perpetuity is now available on YouTube. And Noah, thanks for being on the show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Really enjoyed
0: it. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. In the